So, you know, it definitely becomes a, a race of innovation. And you can't say, well, because we're focused on this and this other company's focused on that, we're going to win. Because if you start winning, then everyone else is just going to respond by adopting your tactics. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar to 33444 and you get instant access. All right, everyone. Today we have a awesome guest. His name is Casey Winters, and he leads growth over at Pinterest, which is a visual bookmarking tool, which is on fire. Uh, unfortunately, they can't reveal or disclose public numbers, so I'm just going to give some estimated numbers right here around um, their their user base, um, which is estimated, you know, over 72 million users, and they they have over 1.3 billion in funding. And the numbers that Casey could share. Uh, he graciously shared with me over 50 billion pins and over 1 billion boards. Um, he's also the first marketer or was the first marketer at Grubhub. Um, Casey, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about your, you know, who you are and kind of your, your journey uh, through you know, leading growth at all these awesome companies? Yeah. So I've been working on growth-related things for a little over a decade now. Started my career working on marketing analytics at a company called Classified Ventures, uh, and they did basically online classifieds, so apartments.com, uh, cars.com. And it was just a great way to learn about what are the things that actually grow internet businesses. So naturally, the next thing I did is after I learned how to measure those types of initiatives, I started working on those types of initiatives, so paid search, organic search, email marketing, those types of things. And the cool thing about Classified Ventures is that they were starting up a lot of new companies inside so they were they were doing you know a, a, a last-minute apartment startup a rental home startup and then eventually a real estate startup which one which I went to lead online marketing for uh, it was really a great building round to just learn how to grow a bunch of different types of internet businesses after that uh, we started at Grubhub as, as the first marketing person uh, they'd raised 1 million in series a funding we're in a couple cities and they really just needed someone to figure out how to take this thing national. So I uh, spent a lot of time uh, just figuring out, like, how do you grow a marketplace uh, that has, you know, restaurants and also people that order from those restaurants. Spent a lot of time focused on growing the consumer side of that business. So built out, you know, organic search strategies, paid search strategies, email marketing, conversion optimization, loyalty programs, uh, transit advertising, TV. You name it, I probably uh, spent some time on it or spent some money on it. And uh, really great experience. We grew from three cities when I started with like the third city getting an order a day to over 600 cities. Uh, went public in April of, of 2014. Uh, acquired a bunch of companies. 
while I was there. Uh, and, you know, now is the dominant national player in, in online food delivery. So, uh, you know, they're valued at over $2 billion today on the public markets. Uh, you know, decided that I was a little bit through with the cold of Chicago, which was where Grubhub was, and, you know, started looking to sunny California uh, at opportunities and, and landed at Pinterest working on growth here. And now I uh, lead the growth team, which is a cross-functional team of engineers, designers, product managers, and analysts. And... Uh, really, we're focused on international growth these days. Uh, you know, Pinterest is forty uh, percent uh, international service. We're really looking to, you know, make it a, a majority international service. So, spending a lot of time on, you know, figuring out the right ways to educate, figuring out how to get in front of people, you know, across the world, and explain what Pinterest is. And yeah, it's a ton of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Awesome. Now. Your your experiences, I mean, you know, having to do classifieds, I mean, and you know, doing a grub, doing Grubhub, and then Pinterest. I mean, it involves a ton and ton of pages, you know, a lot of different listings. So, I mean, what are some trends you've seen growth wise, uh, you know, that have kind of carried over from startup to startup? I'd imagine SEO is a big player. Um, yeah. Why don't you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think you correctly, you know, figured out that when you have a lot of content and a lot of pages of content. Uh, search can be a pretty strong way to try to grow a business. So in the case of Classified Ventures, we had all of these listings and all of these neighborhoods um, that we had you know, apartments for or homes for. So the kind of building block of building an organic search strategy is how do I organize this content in a way that people are searching for where if they landed on my page, it really helps their experience. So in the case of apartments.com, someone searching for you know, Los Angeles apartments, and uh, they land on a page that has Los Angeles apartments, it has local information about Los Angeles, and figuring out how to do that without hand curating every single one of those pages was, you know, a big part of, of what the team worked on. And it's a very similar process uh, when I moved to Grubhub. So Grubhub, you know, terms, the terms you care about are food delivery terms or, you know, cuisine terms that people are typing into search engines. But Really, it's all about how do I create a page that says, hey, this is all you need to know about for, you know, Soma Chinese food. Here are all the restaurants that are delivering to that neighborhood. Here's how to order and doing that in a way where it scales for any neighborhood, any zip code, any college, any city name that someone might type into to a search engine. So a lot of what we built is a back end uh, system where I could just go in and say, yep, we have enough restaurants in West Hollywood now. Let's turn on a page for West Hollywood. And hey, now we have enough pages. We have enough restaurants for Chinese food in West Hollywood. Let's turn on that specific page um, so that when we had relevant content, we could automatically show that to search engines and, and therefore show it to users and get new people to try us. Got it. Okay. Now, so for all of these listings, I, I'd imagine, you know, there's, there's competitors out there. I mean, there's like the eat 24s of the world and all of these. And then the, you know, the, the, how do you guys differentiate your listings from the other ones? Is it user generated content? Like what it is, what is it exactly? Sure. So, uh, you know, talking specifically related to Grubhub, it, it changed a little bit over time. So, uh, when Grubhub started, it was actually not an online ordering platform. What, uh, the founders of Grubhub did is they actually grabbed the menus from every restaurant that delivered and then you know manually called up all of those restaurants to map the delivery boundaries of all of those restaurants so it was the only place on the internet 
internet where you could legitimately say, see every restaurant that delivers to you. And that wasn't something that, you know, Seamless Web at the time or, uh, you know, E24 uh, was doing. So that was, that was the original value proposition. Uh, and then as we started converting more of those restaurants into online ordering, online ordering became an even stronger value prop. And in, in order to differentiate there, what we really started to work on was customer service, where Grubhub would take ownership of the order uh, no matter you know what problem might have occurred. So if the food was late, if you didn't like the food, uh, that sort of stuff, Grubhub would take ownership. Grubhub would make sure you had a good experience because what we realized is that people associated uh, you know their experience of ordering with a particular restaurant with Grubhub. So if if the Grubhub you know if Grubhub did everything fine but the restaurant messed up, it still was on Grubhub to fix it in the eyes of the consumer. So we were the, the first uh, online food delivery company to really take ownership of that customer relationship. Um, but you know, as you see with most uh, startups, if you're doing something that works and you're going faster than other people, the other companies are going to respond. So um, what we started seeing was a lot of convergence um, you know, in the value props over time um, where Seamless Web was uh, at first focused on corporate ordering, not on the consumer. They became more consumer focused. We were the first to be focused on customer service, and then some other services started really trying to get better at that. So, you know, it definitely becomes uh, a race of innovation. And you can't say, well, because we're focused on this and this other company's focused on that, we're going to win. Because if you start winning, then everyone else is just going to respond by adopting your tactics. So if, if I could say one thing that led to us winning over the long term, it would be consistently thinking about what's the best user experience, um, honing in on that, and then building a scalable growth strategy around it so that someone couldn't just adopt what we're doing and uh, you know, kind of usurp uh, our lead in any one market. Got it. Okay. Now, I, I mean, you know... Obviously, best user experience for an online product. I mean, if you have like a, you know, if you have a physical product, obviously it's it's the best quality, right? Um, okay. Now the it sounds like I mean, you know, for Grubhub, going back to that, I mean, to, you had to build up a lot of inventory around the restaurants and all that. So, can you talk to us a little bit about how you, you know, what that process looked like? Did you have like a, you know, did Grubhub have like a sales team or like a robocalling system where you know they just dialed out to everybody to kind of get this inventory? Uh, yeah, so Grubhub did have a sales team, and so we basically had a city launch process that became very replicable, which is, you know, we would decide we'd want to launch Los Angeles, and we would send a couple of people out to Los Angeles, they'd talk to restaurants for a week, uh, they would come back with, um, you know, let's say 50 restaurants that were ready to work with us. I would then put all of those restaurants um, into our systems so that we could create landing pages, um, if anyone wanted to order from those restaurants, figured out how they were structured in terms of neighborhoods and zip codes to see where we had the density to really, you know, offer a compelling product. And typically I would tell those salespeople to be like, hey, just focused on Santa Monica and West Hollywood and we'll expand from there or, you know, similar type of advice. Uh, and then we would, you know, go to the press in that market and say, hey, we've just launched in, uh, we've just launched in L.A., why don't you give your users $10 off their first order on Grubhub um, and let them know about uh, the service? And, you know, we'd get certain press to, to bite on that. And then after, you know, 30, 60 days, we would just redirect um, the landing pages we would tell the press to link to to our SEO pages so that we had the authority um, plus the content to rank really well if someone typed in 
you know, food delivery terms related to that market. Uh, and then typically we would just keep um, salespeople in the market. They would continue building relationships with restaurants, signing them up, getting them to try it. One of the things that made that fairly easy for us is that, you know, we didn't have a year-long contract. We didn't have, you know, a monthly payment model. It was 100% pay for performance, no additional fees. So literally the contract is, hey, if you get an order from us, you pay us a percentage of that order. If you don't get any orders from us, you pay us nothing. You can quit at any time. So it, it literally made it so easy for a restaurant to try that it was hard for them to say no. And, th and that was a key to us being able to scale from a sales perspective. Over time, as national awareness grew of the service from uh, a restaurant perspective, we found that we actually didn't need to send people directly to the market. We could call restaurants over the phone um, and they would be willing to try it and we can get them uh, to try it just, just by calling them. Not robocalls, actually real people, but... Uh, you know, the, we didn't have to necessarily fly a bunch of people out to each uh, city we were launching and station them there, you know, for months or years. Um, we could kind of do it all from the home office. Got it. So the way you did it, I think initially you, you, you know, you sent people in, you know, there's a lot of hand to hand combat. I mean, how long did that go on for? Because I'm just again, you know, people talk about scaling really quickly. And I'm just trying to figure out the fastest way to do this. But it sounds like you guys just stuck with your guns, you stuck with, you know, getting people on the ground or getting people to have like real conversations on the phone, then, you know, once, once people started becoming more aware of it, it kind of just took off on its own. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole goal of growing a marketplace city by city is building a playbook that you can replicate. And if you can understand, you know, how to get the supply going, how to get the demand going in, in each uh, individual market and the, the way it works in one market is the same it works in the other. You can just continue to refine it so that it's more and more efficient and less and less costly, right? So that's, that's all we were doing. And uh, yeah, in terms of how long we actually needed to do you know, very manual work on the, the supply side, I would say that it, for about the first three years that I was there that we were launching cities, um, we would, you know, send salespeople there. We would, um, you know, keep salespeople there, you know, permanently as employees. Uh, the, the other thing you, you need to think about here is, you know, once, once you've been launching cities for three years, uh, the cities you're launching additionally, you're launching more of them at a time because they're smaller and because you have the process more refined. And also because uh, they're smaller, they don't need as much hand-to-hand -hand combat uh, there aren't as many restaurants to sign up, that sort of thing. So that, that's another um, element of the process. But for the first three years, it was basically that same sort of model of you know hiring local salesperson or flying someone in, um, having them meet with restaurants directly, make the sales pitch, and we weren't in a rush to really change that. You know, if it was working, we were happy to do it. You know, I think a lot of startups are like, oh, it's not completely scalable, or it's this should be done entirely with technology. That's not really the Chicago school of, of startups. Um, you know, if, if it works, uh, it doesn't matter how much manual effort it is. We're gonna we're gonna get it done. Got it. I love it. Okay, so that's the first lesson for everyone. Everybody, this is how you go from a few thousand users to millions with Grubhub. Now let's talk about Pinterest. How do you get to massive scale? Yeah, so that was an open question as I started. You know, moving from Grubhub to Pinterest. It's like, can I grow a business that's already has this many users? Uh, I don't, I don't know if the same sort of skill sets apply. 
but what you find is that you know it's a lot of the same things work. You know, getting you from your you know thousand users to ten thousand users work. Getting you from you know one million users to ten to fifty million users. So uh, you know, it's a lot of the same tools in the toolkit. the The scale of the graphs are very different, but uh, it's a lot of the same work. So we mentioned SEO. You know, one of the things that that Pinterest has is it has all of these pins and it has all of these boards, which is you know, individual people you know, all over the world curating what they think are the best objects on an individual topic. And it's really high quality content. Someone's taking the time to say, these things go together and they represent this specific thing that I'm passionate about. Uh, the challenge we were having is that there were images. So Google by default didn't really have any idea what the page was about. So we had to work a lot you know, with our users and with the data we're able to generate about the content to really explain this is a page about woodworking, this is a page about home decor, uh, so that search engines really understood what's this content about um, when someone searches for something, should I rank this or something else? Uh, and that's been really fruitful work for us to grow. Uh, you know, we, We've really went from a, a service built around saving um, to a service that now can power discovery for, for a large percentage of the world because we just have all the content around the internet that people think is interesting related to very specific niche topics. Um, and that was a pretty interesting transformation for the company. Um, and it's certainly something that, you know, search engines reward us for as well. Uh, you know, other things that, that apply very similar way, uh, from my earlier career, things like email marketing are still very effective at, at bringing people back by showing them relevant content. That's something we spend a lot of effort on, making sure that all that content is very personalized because people on Pinterest have widely diverse interests uh, across the globe, and you know even even neighbors have very different interests. So that's something we spend a lot of time on, and we also spend a lot of time on making sure. Uh, any landing page experience is as simple as possible um, and is very focused on getting you to join the service or log into the service because that's when we can provide that personalized discovery experience, which we think is the really magical experience of using Pinterest. Um, so it's not just about seeing, seeing some cool content and then moving on to the rest of the internet. It's about allowing us to um, you know, really show you a personalized discovery experience and show you things you're interested in that you had no idea um, you would ever be interested in or, or would never search for. Huh. Okay. Interesting. So let's jump a little into, dive a little into SEO. So, I mean, you know, obviously you have with over 50 billion pins, you have at least 50 billion pages. So what are some SEO challenges you faced, um, you know, growing this thing? Yeah. So, I mean, you highlight one right off the bat, which is search engines are not going to crawl all 50 billion pins, right? Uh, and they're not going to crawl, you know, all 1 billion boards. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things we had to do is, is just really figure out ourselves, what are the pins and boards that are worth showing to search engines, right? How do we take a site map that, you know, has over 50 billion pages in it and tell Google, you know what, you really only need to look at these 500 million of them or these, you know, this billion of them um, because the rest are very similar content or, you know, not as high quality representations of these topics. So that's something we spent a lot of effort on. I'd say the biggest thing though, is at our scale is we had to build an SEO experiment framework. Uh, they're just, it's such a big service. There's so much content. 
in order for us to really understand um, if something helping search engines understand us or hurting search engines uh, understanding of us, we had to you know do an experiment framework. And the difference for an SEO experiment framework versus uh, you know it's typical experiment framework is that you split things by the page level instead of by the user. So, you know, an optimizely works of, oh, Eric came to the service, we're going to show him one version of the page. Casey came to the service, we're going to show him another version of the page. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually have to do that at the page type level. So in our case, we'll take 10% of the boards and we'll change something about them. We'll add more descriptive text to them. We'll change the title tag, you know, et cetera. And then we'll just see, you know, over time, uh, do search engines provide more traffic to the enabled group or to the control group? Uh, and that's been um, had a huge impact on our understanding of how the search engines crawl us, how they think about our content, um, and our ability to grow our, our traffic from them as well. Huh. Okay. Now, I think you're alluding to, by the way, everybody should check out this post. We'll, we'll try to link to it in the show notes. Um, it's the, the AB testing framework, uh, the AB SEO framework that Pinterest put together. So um, how do you, I guess, how do you, if you had to spec this out to, you know, your, your, your engineers to build this out, I mean, at a high level, what, what would you say? Yeah, um, it's actually not super difficult, right? So um, the first step is you have to identify what are pages that you can group together that are fundamentally the same. So, you know, in our case, we've talked about it. Pins are fundamentally the same type of page, you know, across the board. Boards are fundamentally the same type of page across the board. So then what you have to do is say, okay, now I need a mechanism to randomly sample um, a group of boards out from the rest or randomly sample a group of pins out from the rest. And one of the things you want to be careful about is, you know, not all boards and pins are created equal, right? So you want to make sure that you're looking at, Topically, are they about the same thing? Because if one's seasonally, you know, on trend and one is seasonally off trend, that could impact your results. Um, and the other is just kind of general popularity, right? If one pin, if one pin's used to getting, you know, a thousand visits a day, and another pin's used to getting one visit a day, it's not really a, a similar uh, enabled and control group. So, so you have to figure out the appropriate way to, you know, separate out enabled and control by the page type. Um, then what you want to do is be able to make a change that only uh, you know a search engine crawler will crawl on the enabled group and not see it on uh, the control group, uh, and then you have to think about well what what metrics are you really trying to change here? Typically, it's you're trying to get more traffic from a search engine, so we just have you know a very simple graph that shows the difference in traffic between uh, enabled and control. Um, we run that data down uh, to check for statistical significance. And, you know, in our case, we'll typically run the average experiment for three weeks or so. Um, if we're seeing a gain in traffic, we'll ramp up um, to more pages and finally to 100% of those pages. And if not, you know, we'll shut that experiment down and try something else. Uh, a lot of this stuff you can do pretty manually. Um, we did it manually at first and then started building an interface so we could, you know, keep track of this stuff a little bit easier. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not a supremely daunting task. I, I will say that, you know, if you're only getting a hundred visits from Google a day, there's no point in creating, you know, an experiment framework for SEO. You're just never going to get statistically significant data. You might as well just make a change and then see if your overall graphs go up or down. But when you're getting to the, you know, millions of visits sort of stage, 
uh, it can be very helpful in seeing if you're really making the right type of progress or if you're really shooting yourself in the foot. Well, there it is. There's the A-B testing SEO framework that everybody can literally go out there and build now. And maybe somebody can just go build a, pro- build a product to solve this problem. I don't know. but <laughs> There's a market there. Yep, there definitely is. And I would pay for it. Um, okay. So talk about some of the challenges you're facing right now of going international, because obviously you have to deal with all these translations and you know, I just would love to hear about the process. Yeah. Uh, so international has been an interesting challenge for us. We translated most into most languages, uh, you know, over the year of, of uh, 2014. So, you know, we're, we're available in over 20 languages now. Um, and, you know, typically when you think about uh, going international, that's like the main step you think about is like, oh, you just need to make sure that people can actually read it. And in our case, that was in no way sufficient. Uh, the interesting thing about, you know, Pinterest is that it's all about the content that gets surfaced. And the people that were using Pinterest in Japan and Germany, uh, in a lot of these other countries before it was translated, they obviously knew how to read English and they were pinning and repinning things in English. So what we found is that while we had like translated the service in Japan, a Japanese user would sign up and they would just still get a ton of English content and a very small percentage of Japanese people actually know how to read English. So we really had to take a step back and, and reconfigure how our discovery engine works to prioritize local content um, and then you know, train people that if they are pinning uh, in their uh, country that they shouldn't feel like they need to write it in English so that you know, they will have an audience for that content or, or, or those sorts of things. So that's been a big initiative and we, we've seen pretty interesting um, movement in our metrics after we started localizing a lot of uh, the feeds. And that's a process that's still ongoing for us because you know, it's not just something you can do once and then it scales everywhere. You, you pretty much have to make the effort country by country. So that's been one interesting effort. Uh, related to that, you know, SEO is a very different challenge internationally because uh, you know, in the US we have all this content, it's all grouped together. Um, outside of that, you, know, you have basically zero credit for that because none of that content is in the local language either. So uh, really making sure that we can organize the content we have so that Google finds it versus finding all of the English content and says, oh, this is an English site, it shouldn't rank in google.fr. Those types of projects are are things we really had to work on. uh, And it's more challenging than you think uh, at our scale. Uh, Just lots of localization work, lots of really understanding. uh, You know, if you have a picture of someone running you know, people don't run as a hobby in some cultures, right? So that just doesn't make sense. Uh, learning all of those things. So uh, one of the things that I did that was super illuminating is uh, actually took a trip out to Paris and uh, just we ran through the product with a bunch of, of French people. And, you know, you really just get to see like, oh, you know, they were trying to find one of their friends and the accent didn't work or, you know, they were searching for cake and cake means something different in, uh, in French than it does in English. And you just notice that like, wow, this is a much larger effort than we had anticipated. So we, we finally internalized that and started really making a lot of progress toward it. But, uh, Herculean might be too strong a word, but it's, uh, it's been an interesting, uh, set of work for us. 
Interesting. So uh, when you guys are when you guys are doing international, uh, for just an SEO question, are you guys using like a like a dot com and a subdirectory or using a subdomain or like a different TLD? Yeah, uh, we are using a subdomain in this case. So okay. it would be fr.pinterest.com. I'd say if, if I were doing things from scratch, I would probably use uh, a CCTLD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like a Pinterest.fr. In our case, you know, Pinterest was a little bit late to start uh, going international with the service. Uh, so a lot of those um, domains were actually purchased already by squatters and very expensive to acquire. So, uh, you know, having a consistent um, top level domain at the country level was was not an option in a lot of these countries. So we have subdomains everywhere. Uh, if you're if you're starting a startup today. You know, as soon as you can, I would buy, you know, all of the country code versions of your brand name. Uh, it's money well spent. So I, I'll leave you guys with, with that uh, advice. But yeah, uh, the subdomains has been fine. It, it creates some individual challenges. I think the, the click-through rate on search engines is a little bit lower with a, with a subdomain than it is with, a, uh, you know, a country code uh, domain. But, you know, you just have to make those trade-offs based on, uh, you know, the environment. Wow. Okay. That, that, that sucks for you guys. Well, <laughs> um, okay. It's not a deal breaker in any way, but I mean, obviously you would like to have the, uh, the country code if you can. Are, are they trying I mean, are, are those squatters trying to sell each one for like a million bucks? I can't get into the, the oh, let's not talk about the money. I'm just going to assume it's a million. I'm just going to throw it out there guys. They're trying to sell it for a million bucks each. <laughs> um, okay. You, it's really interesting. Cause I, I remember, uh, Chamath from Facebook, um, said in the past when they're trying to in, in, or the, when they're trying to uh, go international um, you know some of the some people recommended that you know they should just hire a bunch of smart MBAs and send them to different countries but what they did was that you know they just hired they went to those actually country actual countries and hired people within those countries um, to build up their internationalization and it worked out well for them so uh, just interesting uh, interesting anecdote but anyway um, you mentioned in a blog post, um, you talked about how to build a marketing team at a consumer technology company. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, it's one of the things that a lot of people have asked me about and there's been a lot of confusion about is, you know, there's some sensitivity around the term marketing in, in technology companies and what is marketing and what value does it provide. So just trying to provide a little bit of insight, you know, as someone that's, that's worked in that field uh, pretty much, you know, his entire career about, the optimal ways to structure that sort of thing. And, and, and the main thing I would provide is that there's really a couple different types of marketing. There is what I would call growth marketing, sometimes called performance marketing, where everything you do is very analytical and measurable. It includes you know, product-focused initiatives like conversion optimization and SEO. It also includes uh, paid marketing initiatives like paid search, Facebook ads, retargeting, that sort of stuff. That's, that's one group of, of marketing uh, that tends to be very different from the other, uh, which is much more what I would call brand marketing. It's very focused on the message. It's focused on the positioning. It's focused on softer channels such as like social media and PR, things that are less measurable, less, less measurable more story-based. Those tend to be two very different skill sets. And ideally, you want you know a VP of marketing or a CMO that understands the value of both. Maybe they're stronger in one than the other, um, but they should represent that those are generally two different groups. 
and both are extremely valuable for uh, a, a technology company to have. And the, the earlier you are, the more you might lean on that performance or growth marketing side, and the later you are, the more you might lean on that brand marketing side. It, it kind of depends on what your challenges are as, as you grow a business. Um, but both need to be present. They're, they're tend to be very different in their skill sets. And if you're hiring a team, you, you need to know that uh, and, and what value each of those are going to provide. Okay. Do you, um, I'm not sure if it was you that wrote this, but I, I think, I think there's like a, there's like an extensive blog post. I have to find it and put it in the show notes, but it, it just talks about what you just said in depth and says, you know, what, what skills you need for each of these positions exactly. And I think, I think you're totally, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Um, okay. So the, going back to SEO for a little bit again, how do you sell, I, I remember doing this in the past. I mean, how do you sell the importance of SEO or how do you sell the importance of links to executives? Cause they just don't get this stuff at the end of the day. Ultimately you need to prove it with data. So, I mean, this is how most technology companies are run. So, you know, marketers especially are, are used to a situation where marketing is well understood as a function. Um, it is understood its value and its voice in the organization and technology companies don't have that default respect for uh, the discipline. So you need to prove your value with data. And in SEO specifically, you need to be able to find ways to do things and show the results, which is why the SEO experiment framework's been so helpful for us at Pinterest. Huh. Early on, you don't necessarily need to do an experiment to show that. They need to show, hey, I did this a month later, I got this. Um, links is way more complicated to explain, and I actually have a blog post um, about this very topic because it is so difficult. Link building is pretty much impossible to prove the value of from an analytical perspective. So it, it tends to become more of a game theoretical exercise where I liken it to uh, climate change. So <laughs> if you, uh, climate change can be happening or it cannot. Uh, if it happens and you, uh, don't do anything about it, you're in big trouble. Uh, if it doesn't happen and you did something about it, you're fine. Uh, so what's worse, um, doing something about it and finding out that it wasn't a big deal or not doing something about it and having your, your business die. Uh, typically one is more profitable than the other. So what happens is if you decide not to link build, but all of your competitors do, uh, you know, you have a high chance of dying. And then if you, all you need to do is link build as well to make sure you don't die. You know, it's generally the, the profitable thing to do in, in the long run. So it, it's definitely a game theoretical argument. Uh, it's, it's something that you want to make sure you have a good amount of time to go through with an executive, but uh, you know, widely understood to be a very important function, depending on the industry, right? Like if, if you don't have a lot of competitors, you can just have great content and still rank. Typically on a search engine today, there are going to be a good amount of competitors and links are an important component. We happen to be in a pretty good position at Pinterest where we get a lot of links naturally because there are, you know, it's a lot, it's user generated content site. People link to their content. There's a lot of press about Pinterest. So we don't tend to worry too much about link building, um, but extremely important function uh, for SEO in general. And if you're not going to get those links naturally, um, you need to find ways, you know, not against go any Google guidelines or anything, but you need to find ways to try to attract those links better if, if you want to rank well. It's just how it works. 
Right. I, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, there's there's a spectrum, right? When you're first starting out, you know, it's more of the, the manual outreach, hand-to-hand combat type of stuff, build out the content and just let things compound, uh, let the links compound over time. But once you get to a certain scale, um, you, you have a lot of brand equity, the, the links almost just come in automatically and it's up to you to figure out what you want to do with that equity. So, you know, you've guys, you guys have obviously figured out how you guys want to, you know, pass uh, link equity in your, your website and kind of maximize the value there. Um, but I, I think, you know, again, there's, there's two different spectrums, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, you know, we've talked a lot about SEO. You've talked about how you guys manage retention with email. I mean, you know, what else has worked for you guys in terms of growth? Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that's a little bit unique to Pinterest that we spend a lot of time on is, is working with publishers and partners. So, you know, every piece of content on Pinterest comes from somewhere else and, if publishers and partners optimize their service to drive content into Pinterest, uh, that makes sure that you know people have a good experience and they're seeing the best content. But also means that people click on that content, which drives traffic back to uh, you know these publishers and partners. So we've really worked to educate that group on how they get value from Pinterest, adding things like the pin it button to their site, and that's also a way that drives you know awareness and exposure for Pinterest over the long term as people see those Pinterest buttons uh, across the internet and then they click on them and they're able to save that content and create an account. That's another way that's driven a lot of value for us from a growth perspective. So that's, that's probably the main other way. Um, we definitely, you know, have our user base share a lot of content to Facebook. So that's uh, a nice awareness driver and acquisition driver as well. And, uh, those would be like the, you know, kind of the, the growth drivers that I work on. From an overall business perspective, Pinterest grew mostly via word of mouth. You know, historically, um, it was an invite-only service for a very long time, uh, where you know you had to request an invite, and, and once you were invited, you had a certain amount of invites to to bring your friends in. Uh, so that was something that drove a lot of word of mouth in the early days, and you know, even today. You know, most people come to Pinterest from, you know, one of their friends telling them about the service. But, you know, as, as to talking about the things that growth optimizes, it's generally, you know, search engines, you know, Facebook and publishers and partners are the, those three big buckets that we work on. I love it. Okay, let's uh, let's shift the conversation to you. And before I do that, actually, one more SEO question, the last one. Um, you like SEO. <laughs> I do, I do, especially at the consumer technology level where you're at, the scale where you're at. I think it's incredible. Um, but you know, I, I mean, obviously Google has been cracking down for the the past few years already, um, and it's made you know they've made SEO harder. It's just not simple to get into anymore. And you know that, that I think as a result, there's just not as many people going uh, into SEO or really learning to discipline anymore. Um, I think, you know, you've been doing it for, you know, a decade or so. I've been doing it for a couple of years and I, I've managed to sneak in before Google made it tough. But um, I, how do you find, you know, good SEO people? Yeah, it, it's it's very difficult. And, and in particular with Pinterest case, we are operating at a scale from an SEO perspective in, in which the challenges that we deal with are are fairly unique, right? There, there aren't a ton of services that are... Uh, have you know over 50 billion pages that are, are shown to Google. So I've really just sought out companies that you know when I search, I see relatively often uh, that I know they're operating internationally or they're operating at a very good scale uh, and try to you know build relationships with them, talk to them, see the things they're seeing, 
you know, have more of that open dialogue, you know, as long as they're not competitive. Uh, so that's, that's been a value for me. And, you know, I think it's been a value to, to the other folks in the industry. Uh, the, the other, which I think is less valuable perspective to get is to, uh, go to a bunch of the conferences on SEO. They can provide some value, but they're, there's generally diminishing returns there. Uh, cause those, you know, uh, panels and whatnot tend to talk about the same things every year. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that really seeking out people that are doing really great SEO, um, at, at other companies has been the most valuable thing to do. And, you know, even though that I've, I've worked a long time in SEO and, you know, other, other parts of growth, it, it just never hurts to get another person's perspective as to what's going on because, um, you know, people are encountering different problems and, you know, they might have picked up on something you didn't um, that's incredibly valuable to learn or will help you not waste a lot of time that you would have wasted otherwise. So that's the main way that, I, that I've done it. Totally agree. Okay. Now we can finally shift it to you. Um, so what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah. Uh, whew, learn to code. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, more seriously, uh, yeah, there's there's kind of a personal level and there's more a professional level. Personal level, you know, twenty five is around that stage where uh, your your body tends to start telling you things that uh, you can't continue to do at the same rate. So just really thinking about um, exercise, really thinking about building a healthy diet. That's the personal stuff. Um, professional. You know, your career is really about the people you meet and the skills you collect. Um, so really focusing not as much on, um, you know, a title um, that you're shooting for or necessarily, you know, a certain role. But what are the things I'm learning today? How do I learn more than what I'm learning today? Uh, that's really the stuff that pays off down the road. Uh, so collecting as many skills as possible. Um, you know, related to your career, or just, you know, um, personally that you maybe aren't part of your career now, but maybe will be part of your career later. That's probably what I would tell myself. Okay. And how do you structure your day? I, I find that people are increasingly structuring my day for me. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, you know, I, I wake up and all of a sudden I see like five additional meetings added to my day. Uh, no, but um, so there, there's a few things. So, so I manage a team. So, um, you know, Mondays are typically, uh, I have a, a bunch of one-on-ones, um, with, with my team, um, to figure out, you know, what we're trying to get accomplished for the week, what challenges they're having, uh, any insights I need to be thinking about. Uh, and then we also set the tone for the week with a, a metrics meeting where we go over the metrics for the previous week. What happened? Why did it happen? Um, you know, what are ways that we can, uh, improve upon the good things, maybe mitigate some of the bad things that might have happened. So, you know, Monday is a lot of that setting the tone um, for the week. Um, Tuesday, uh, we tend to do more deep dives into specific topics on the sub team. So, growth is made up of an acquisition team, a uh, conversion team, an engagement team, an international team, uh, you know, uh, and we have, you know, separate meetings for all of those things where we break down the, de- the metrics at a deeper level. We do a deep dive on one specific strategic initiative we're working on. Um, we get up to speed on all of the you know individual tasks, that sort of thing. Wednesday is kind of our you know let's eliminate meetings and let's really um, 
hammer through, uh, you know, large scale things we want to do. So this will typically be, um, where I'm doing analysis or I am, uh, you know, writing specific, um, docs on new projects or initiatives we want to get started. Um, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, you know, Thursday's typically a day where I'll do some, some outside, um, chatting with folks like you today. Uh, you know, get, get that perspective from, from other people, um, meet up with the broader uh, product team to understand other things that are going on. Um, so that's, that's generally how things are structured. A lot of it is by day. Um, and then a lot of the, the in-between are, you know, kind of those meetings on strategic initiatives, making sure that we have alignment across the team and can move as fast as possible. So I'm kind of that meeting buffer. So uh, a lot of the other members of the team can, um, can work fast and, and not be disrupted. Love it. I, I, you know, it would be great if you, uh, if you created some type of course around how to run the growth team at a consumer technology company, I'd, I'd pay for it. Um, I'd pay for it too. <laughs> okay. What's one must read book you'd recommend to everyone? Sure. You know, I think I would read, uh, if I only had one and I was working at all in something similar to, to the field I'm working in, it would be thinking fast and slow by, Daniel Kahneman. So Daniel Kahneman's basically the founder of a new field called behavioral economics, and he won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago. And what behavioral economics is, is a study of how people actually make decisions as opposed to traditional economics, which is about how people are supposed to make decisions. And if you're at all working on any sort of business, a big part of it is understanding how people make decisions and how they're going to react to the things that you're showing them and the things that you're telling them. And, you know, Kahneman breaks it down in a way where it's really easy to understand. Uh, it's really easy to understand that it's not just dumb people that make these decisions. The smartest people in the world make decisions like this. And it's just how our brain works naturally. So that would be the, the one book um, I would recommend. And um, I definitely you know, continue to use it even today. I love it. It, it. It's the feeling I get is that you have a very close number two. Do you, do you want to reveal that? A very close number two. Okay. Uh, I really think I probably have like four, uh, give them all away. Let's, let's do it. Okay. So, so one would be uh, black swan by Nassim Taleb. So mm. what black swan is about is, um, really understanding that, certain things are good at being measured by statistics and certain things are not. And the the certain things that are not good at being measured by statistics are things that can have a very wide and and most of the time unknown level of impact at the tail. So, you know, at the very negative stage or the very positive stage. So if you think about the difference between, um, you know, minimum and max height of uh, an American male you know, there's, there's a very limited scale, you know, from, uh, you know, maybe two feet to eight feet that you could be in. Um, but wealth, you know, can go everywhere from, you know, zero dollars all the way to billions. There's just a much bigger scale. And honestly, the scale keeps moving further and further out. So understanding the differences and when statistics make sense to use, when it doesn't make sense to use, what happens um, at some of these tails really illuminating, really helps you think about problem sets in a different way and helps you evaluate evidence that comes in or lack of evidence that comes in to a problem in a different way. That would be um, a very important book for me to read. Uh, 
Crossing the Chasm mm. um, by one. Jeffrey Moore. Uh, yeah, seems like you're familiar with it. Really understanding how to make progress in growing uh, a business from early adopters to the majority of uh, a user base and understanding where the gaps are, understanding beachhead strategies that help you do that um, is, is another great book. Feel like I'm missing a major one uh, that would be really good uh, to think about, um, but I'm uh, maybe I'll come back to it if I remember. No worries. You know, I'll, I'll come back to you um, because we're about to cap out over here, but uh, I'll come back to you for that book. We'll drop it in the show notes for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, Casey, this has been incredible. Um, what's the best way for people to find you online? So I'm obviously on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash one case man. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at one case man. Uh, and you can always check out my blog at caseyaccidental.com. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, everyone, this is obviously Pinterest is, you know, getting bigger and bigger. And then if you haven't heard of it yet, um, you know, you will soon. I mean, very important, I think, uh, product that I like using as well. So Casey, thanks so much for doing this. I remember my last book, it's The Goal by Elias Yahoo Goldratt. Ah, the one that Jeff Bezos recommended. And it is the best book on conversion optimization that is not about conversion optimization. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I've, I've forced people to read that book in the past. It's a good one. All right, everybody. Um, Casey, again, thanks, thanks, thanks so much for doing this. Um, again, everyone check out Pinterest. And uh, Casey, hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Eric. Hey, everyone. Just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K, and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.